This is episode 01 of Free as in Freedom. Hi, this is Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. And this is Free as in Freedom. Yes, this is the first actual official Freeze and Freedom show. It's true. Hey, your chairs are noisy. I wonder mm-hmm. if they're going to come through. I bet they will. Okay. We've had enough technical mishaps already. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so, so we, we, uh, we said we were going to have a show uh, a week and a half ago, and the reason we didn't was all the recordings we made had an audio buzz that was apparently from the power on a laptop. And so now uh, we had to do it again. Well, we're doing it again. And I don't have the laptop plugged in. Our, so. our personal professional engineer is out of town. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Dan said he could do nothing with the audio. It was, Dan. it was pretty bad. Yeah. So nothing could be done. And now we're recording without a laptop, uh, with the laptop unplugged. It so almost I, sounds like recording without a license. Well, <laughs> I'm worried <laughs> the laptop battery is going to go dead while we're recording. So it's weird saying the word recording so many times when, um, our laptop stand is actually two books about recording technologies. Well, would it tell us <laughs> how to fix this power? Thing? I don't know. One is called the Handbook of Recording Engineering. It might actually. Well, I don't think. I think just leaving it unplugged for now. I guess I'll charge it in between segments or something. I guess so. Well, so uh, yeah, we don't. We don't. We're obviously in new facilities. Bear with us. Which is Karen's apartment, <laughs> and uh, and. With squeaky chairs, and uh, <laughs> and so we're we're using my laptop, uh, which is not the laptop we used to use, and maybe that's why we had the problem. Yeah. I don't know. No, we used my laptop last time, which wasn't the laptop we used to use either. But that's true. But when we tested with my laptop with it plugged in, we had the same problem. That's true. So so it's it's the power system in this building. That's what I think. That's weird. Well, no, it's it's it could be at whatever because the the things don't stay at the right frequency necessarily. The, the frequencies drift a little bit. So it's drifted to just the right frequency that is causing the problem. Do you know what's sad? What's sad is that we recorded a whole podcast and we just can't use it. That's true. We could just re-say it all. We could, but we wouldn't do that. We could put our headphones on and play it and then just say <laughs> the same things we said before. Like an audio dub? I, I guess, yeah. Or we could put it into a teleprompter. <laughs> we could transcribe it. and. It really wasn't that good. No, it wasn't, it wasn't worth saving, I guess, but... Now there's been new topics and we'll have to cover them. Yeah. Yeah. Although we should cover some of the topics we talked about um, because I think they're of interest to our listeners. For example, the licensing of the show. Well, I finally have convinced you. I don't know if you convinced me so much as I just thought about it a lot more. Carl Fogel convinced you. No. Carl Carl agrees with me. Although I looked up at um, at my... um, at my door, and I have a question copyright logo on. Yeah, so uh, for our big. listeners, uh, Carl Fogel is the executive director. Is that his title? Or yeah, is he and founder of. And I think he's president too, but I'm not sure. Well, like me in conservancy, he's president yeah. and founder, and. And Eben with the Suffer Freedom Law Center. Yeah, but he has that weird title, like director, council, or something. <laughs> Whatever that means. Well, it just um, means all the. Oh, he's a lawyer too. That's true. So, uh, but Carl Fogel is uh, with Question Copyright, and he believes in being allowed to modify works. And like I'm also our, counsel to Question Copyright. Yeah, so. you were pro no derivatives for so no, long. No, I wasn't pro no derivatives. I just, um, I, I was basically, and I've actually talked to Nina Paley, who is a, a vehement copyright abolitionist, about this. And it's it's really it's trying to use copyright 
to accomplish something completely unrelated to copyright. That's what I said. And sometimes it's appropriate. Like, sometimes I think it's a, it's useful to do that. Use one legal regime to um, accomplish something in another, but it often is not. And I think in this instance, it's a little overboard. But you're always Which worried about people misrepresenting you, taking well, each word and putting it together to say, Karen Sandler said, <laughs> well, to the extent I believe that there is no <laughs> copyright. <laughs> well, to the extent that, you I know, think software patents are great. <laughs> that we sometimes talk about, you know, legal topics and I'm a lawyer. I worry about being construed as giving legal advice. And for all of our listeners, this is not legal advice. I don't know how many times I'm going to say that over the course of the show, um, but I said it a lot over the Software Freedom Law Show. Yeah, and then they could they couldn't even make derivatives then. So now that they can make derivative works, you're going to say it even more. Am I? Are you more? <laughs> you wor- are you really? No, are you really worried? I want to know. Are you really more worried now that people are going to do something well, that misrepresents you? Do, do, do you think the change in license really creates a worry that there's something worse that can happen now? I don't know about that. I just want to be really careful always to make sure that people understand me clearly and understand what our relationship is. And especially where. Well, I couldn't understand no... clearly last time because there was this audio buzz. <laughs> yeah, but where, you know, where there is no legal relationship, where I'm not, I don't, I don't know the facts of any particular situation um, of our listeners. I don't want someone to think that. Um, because I've, I gave a general opinion about an, an issue that it may apply to their particular situation where I, you know, some, there may be some fact that makes it inapplicable. So, you know, I just, I just worry about that. But and that I know we is... have a few lawyer listeners and I'm, I, I, I'm sure that they, they feel similarly. But that issue you just described, isn't that the same? If there's no derivatives versus derivatives in some sense, because if people listen to it and think that they can take some sort of legal advice from you, they would do that. No, it is, it is, it is a problem, but no derivatives at least means that it stays, it stays whole. So it comes with all of my caveats and, um, and comes with the, the complete context of conversation. It's, you know, I mean, truth be told, under copyright law, you can excert pieces of what I said for a variety of, of uses under in fair fact, use. In fact, they could take even much smaller pieces. In fact, could take smaller pieces and not attribute them yeah. properly. I mean, you know, so there are exceptions to, you know, to or safe harbors in the copyright law for that. Um, so, you know. But the fair use situation is much more scary. I mean, this is the, the for example, this is the Daily Show thing of taking people out of context and just taking a very small clip, which is fair use there. They don't have a right to make that as a derivative work. So yeah. that's oh, actually well, that's big, what I'm, that's what the I'm fair saying. use thing seems a bigger issue. Well, that's, than this. well that's, that is what I'm saying. But um, but at the same time, if someone were to present what I said, um, you know, in a, in a larger part, I, as I said, I, I wasn't convinced that it was really the right answer, which is why I, I agreed to change the license of the show. I just, um, I don't know, maybe it's just the lawyer instinct in me to be cautious to use these powerful legal regimes against our listeners? No. <laughs> That's what failing to allow people to make sure it works really does. No, I'm, you know? I'm, I'm all about sharing, I promise. Yeah, yeah. Well, so now people are going to write in and ask me about the, the FDL and variant sections. Yep. Yeah. So especially I almost I mentioned it, it, but I... Well, I I, I, I... I just didn't think we wanted to... I don't mind mentioning it. I, I, yeah. I, I think that... that uh, Have you looked at the... Um, I think it's freedefinition.org, the um, 
the free definitions for free culture? Yeah, I saw you mention that uh, at one point on something else, and uh, I hadn't looked at it in detail. Okay. Well, I just think it's interesting because of the um, of the way it talks about the invariant sections of the FDL as well. But um, but what I like about what they've done there is that they are clearly inspired by um, what Richard Stallman and the FSF has done with the free definitions and software and brought them over to, to free culture in a way that I, I think pretty much works. I mean, I don't know. It's, I think it's less, it's not as tested. So. If, well, will it work to convince free culture people to stop using Macs? <laughs> Cause that's my big beef with free culture is that they tend to prefer Macs. Yeah. And it's uh it's, it's a, um, an objection I have as well, but, um, did I ever tell you that Larry Lessig showed up to give a keynote at a FSF event using a Mac? You when, did not tell me when that. When he was on the board of directors of FSF. Um, yeah, that didn't. That, that, did I tell you about that didn't the, work out so well. the lawyer that presented to a Linux Foundation um, collaboration summit with the uh, um, a Windows laptop? But it was not only a Windows laptop, but while he was talking, it went into screensaver mode, and he had never changed the screensaver away from the Windows logo. So while he was talking about, um, actually about standards and, um, and you know, XML, there was this, <laughs> I'm not saying who it is. You're, you're well, thinking, everybody knows who it is. What, maybe, what maybe, person maybe, who maybe. presents no, at Linux of, Foundation there are a lot of people who about could, standards? Tons who of could lawyers, that be? Tons of lawyers presented at the Linux Foundation, some, you know, various yeah, I know. things. I know but, who this is. Just but, by context. But there was, but yeah, the, there was amazing watching the Windows logo bounce in the background. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, but, uh, it's, it's, it's disturbing, as Fontana and I would say, Fontana also being a lawyer who doesn't use Windows, uh, like you, um, he would say this is disturbing how many lawyers use Windows. He was yeah. telling me, you know, now, he said this publicly, actually, that there, that, uh, that there, there are lawyers at Red Hat who use FTS Oh, really? Windows. Yeah. Wow. Now, to be fair, they say they many to. of these lawyers, and perhaps the lawyer that um, that was giving this presentation, work at law firms that have standard, like standardized choices for computers and operating systems, and um, and it's very, very difficult to get them to make exceptions. So sometimes they're just um, in order to keep their job at their law firm, they must keep using that system. Or that I guess, well, I, software. if somebody made me use proprietary software in my job, I would quit. Well, naturally, you well, would. Well, why wouldn't everybody? See, if everybody would do that, then there would be no proprietary software. Lines. Well, that's for sure. So, so everybody needs to. Do I mean, that. that's the way I. I mean, I I completely agree. I mean, that's the way we can solve a lot of problems. It's just through mere consumerism. If we vote with, you know, vote with our money and vote with our choices, you know, that solves the problem. Well, that's not really consumerism. That that's basically saying consumerism would be different. That's not buying Windows yourself. Right, which I think most people in the free software world. I don't know. Do. I mean, I think you know, refusing to use. That's not. Um, I wouldn't call it consumer choices when you say. But it becomes a, a consumer choice because that law firm then has to reevaluate what its choices are and what licenses it's going to choose or buy. It is consumerism. I well, I don't, I don't know if I want to believe that, but you could be right. But. But I mean, that's how we can effectuate change. We just all have yeah, to make so, good choices. So yeah, so you have to. I see. The, uh, Stallman convinced me of this very early on, and I have not changed my mind since I heard him say it. Which was that he makes this joke in his talks about. Uh, I decided. I he he puts it. How does he put it? He says, "When I realized that I thought writing proprietary software was wrong, I had to decide whether I could still do it because I thought it was wrong." And the question, uh, obviously, is can I get any other job? 
And then, as he says it, I realized I could be a waiter. I wouldn't be a very good waiter, <laughs> but I could do the job. Therefore, it's not required to live to write proprietary software. And I was, I decided the same well, thing, that I, that I would never produce proprietary software because I can always find a job as a waiter or I'd probably work at a coffee shop. But Yeah, I mean, you know, that's an exaggerated example, but I think we all strive to make those kinds of choices in well, our lives. I think a lot of people insist on working in their field. I think a lot of people have a lot of pride. And if they can't get a job, I, I talk to a lot of developers who have this attitude, they will try to get a job writing free software. And if they can't, they will decide that they're going to take a job writing proprietary software. Yeah, but a lot of developers don't feel moral about True. free software in the way that we do. Some of them I meet do. Some of them I meet, they, they try really hard and then just decide to, to that they want to that stay. Basically, they've made a moral choice that staying in their field is more important than the morality right, of free software. Right, a sense of identity. Yeah. And from my point of view, if my field is not going to let me do what I think is right for the field, I, the reason I got into free software in the first place is as a computer scientist, I felt that it was wrong for computer science to ever do or have proprietary software. So why would I be part of the regime that's destroying computer science? I think proprietary software destroys computer science because it takes away students' abilities to learn about software. And, there, and, and that was how I first came to it because I was just out of school when I first got into this. So Now, to defend the Mac users, because there are a few Mac users that I know who are working on some good stuff um, and working on some really good free software for Mac use. I just think that I, I think that making using Macs and creating free software for um, popular platforms is an important part of the advocacy for free and open source software. I think it's complicated. There are some cases where you're able to move people off of proprietary, major proprietary applications. Um, so the classic example is open office developers or LibreOffice developers these days working to make sure it works okay on Windows and Mac as well as uh, Linux systems. There's, I suppose, an argument for that, that, that if you can sell one less proprietary program, if somebody's still buying a Windows license but isn't buying a Microsoft Word license, that's you've improved uh, things somewhat. And the same goes for things like Firefox and, and other browsers that run on other platforms. Um, but also, uh, you know, a, a, a taste of good free software is often the first step. Yeah, well, I hope the LibreOffice guys are able to make that stuff good. Um, quite honestly, I've never been that <laughs> thought open office was all that good. Uh, but now that it's now that they forked, it's good news because there's probably going to be much more improvement. I mean, I have to say that when I show people, um, you know, when I when I tell people who are who have never heard about free software, don't understand free software, and I tell them about it, and I tell them to start out with small programs, start out with using for example, Pigeon or OpenOffice, not a small program, but but one one piece. It it and they see Firefox and they see that it's good. Then they are much more open to the whole idea. They think it's really cool. See, I always felt the other way was better. So one of the reasons I'm supportive of the Wine Project is I felt that getting people switched to a free software platform and then the few legacy applications that are proprietary they felt they had to use. Letting them use them on the free platform is better. Well, that's a completely different issue. I mean, if there's no tool to do the job that's 
free and open source, then there's no tool to do the job and we need something like one so that we can use those legacy programs. I mean, I, I, I just think that's a slightly different issue. See, I think it's, I think it's the same issue in the sense that your goal is to get people to use mostly, you realize if you can't get people to use 100% free software, right? Most people I know who are already using GNU Linux, I, I advocate for them to use 100% free software because they've come so far that they probably won't have that much inconvenience from it. But those who have never used, are still using proprietary software all day, every day, for those people, it makes sense to try and find a way they can use some free software and well, that's, some that is what I'm talking proprietary. about. But see, I, but then, but that's the same question. Just to introduce right? some free software into what they're using, so that they get comfortable with the idea and excited about it. See, the reason I think that the Wine approach that it's the same problem, the Wine approach is better, is because if you swap out for a GNU Linux system underneath, everything they're going to be installing mostly when they go into their search for programs to install, they'll find mostly free software and all that sort of thing. So if they have a few proprietary applications on GNU Linux, it's much better than having it's a just few free programs such on a hump Windows. to get people to even try it out. Mm. And they just won't if they haven't, if they haven't experienced some piece of it already. Yeah. So this is, this is why I think that it's going to be so hard convincing non-technical people. But this I find that it's point. actually not so hard when you get one-on-one -on -one with people and you start to explain why why freedom is important and they see that the software is good. Those two things together really make for a good sale and people so are much problem. more willing to give it a shot. And once once you get a taste, you want more. I guess. But, the, but of course, this goes back to open office kind of sucking. But I've actually not experienced that. Okay. Well, and, I, I suppose and, I'm a bad and, judge because I, I only use what I have to. And I converted my whole family over to Open Office, and they're very happy with it. They've not once said to me that they missed Word. Well, I've heard that Open Office runs better on Windows than GNU Linux. If you've if you've gotten installed for people, have you seen that to be true? I don't know because I don't I've know. I've used only, Windows since I, I, I haven't. I've only used it myself on uh, you know on my GNU Linux. But if you set it up for people and only on Mac. You, oh, you set it up for people on Mac. They just have Macs. Okay. okay. Yeah. Cause it, cause I, it's, it, actually, my sister has a netbook that actually that was Windows. Her netbook so did you, had Windows did on Open it. Open Office seem better on Windows. It seemed the same to me, same. but I've always felt like it was good. So okay. it's always been pretty satisfactory. That's actually me. been a, a complaint that I've heard about people from people, and I've heard this about Firefox too. And and that's another thing I worry about is oh, see, most of the people I know who switched to Firefox from Explorer were thrilled. Oh no, that, that I agree. Because there's so many people using Explorer. My point was oh, that Safari Firefox, to Firefox. No, my point was Firefox runs better on Windows than it does on GNU Linux. Is that true? I've heard that from people, from a lot of people. Hmm. Now, I, I, this is all anecdotal. I don't, I haven't seen a usability study. I haven't seen anything statistically significant, but I've, I've heard this from people and complaints that the GNU Linux version of Firefox is, and of OpenOffice for that matter, is sort of a, a stepchild of sorts. Hmm. Um, so I, I think, I think, that's something I worry about too with these cross-platform applications that, that, that we want the, the version on the free platform to run hopefully the best, um, equal at least. And I think that sometimes doesn't happen. 
I don't think that I, hmm. I don't think open office, uh, I want to judge it anymore because the LibreOffice guys are putting so much work in. And I just saw a, a, some data recently that they have so many more commits. No, than it's just upsetting had. to hear you talk about um, open office negatively when I've actually had a really good experience okay. with it. Okay. Well, I, 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 like I said, I'm withholding judgment now because the whole community has changed. And now there's actually a free software community forming around it through the Document Foundation. And they're, they're actually, they, they published a list of how many commits they're getting and they're getting more commits than they did in the last year or something like that. So they, they just got more That's people That's great. Involved. No, I look forward to, I really look forward to seeing what happens. I just, uh, I, I, I was happy before. So maybe I'll be even happier. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, do you really want Oracle controlling your free software? Even if it's free software, do you really want Oracle in control of it? I mean, I don't advocate for company control of free. I mean, you, you, Phrase that question in such a loaded way. I, I mean, <laughs> but but I think I think my point is that judgments about Open Office had to change because of the Oracle acquisition of Sun. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, we're just talking about the quality of the software itself and using it, and I'm saying that I had a good experience with it, and that software was available, and there were forks. Mm. There were you know less official forks before. Mm. So that is the function of a free and open source software project. That is, in some ways, success, and I I don't think there's anything wrong with that. True. I so I, I think I'm that, all about. I'm really. I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I'm so. I mean, I'm supportive of of you know of a nonprofit driven community for sure, absolutely, and especially if it has diversified interests that are not entirely contained in one company. But you know that doesn't mean that to the extent that software is developed within a company and released and there is community activity, that that's not good too. Yeah, I, I, I'm distrustful of the way that OpenOffice operated and the proprietary forks that continued. And that was true at Sun as well, for that matter. It's not like mm -hmm. that's new to Oracle, but Oracle's sort of the master of subjugating users. So well, Microsoft's the only one who's better at it than them. Maybe Apple, but they're certainly in the top three. What? It's true. This is this is what these I'm not, companies do. I'm not do. disagreeing. I'm just, uh, <laughs> You're laughing at me. Well, I'm not laughing at you. I just, you know, You're I are not laughing with I, me. Well, I wouldn't. So you must be laughing. Well, I wouldn't talk about. I don't think I would couch it in terms of subjugating users. I just see. I believe that about proprietary software. No, I I too agree that I I too agree with that about proprietary software. But we're we're actually not talking about proprietary software now. We're talking about open office. So my argument would be that companies who have this long history of using proprietary software to subjugate users, when they get involved with open source, and I say open source on purpose there, they're, they're likely to try and port what they used to do in proprietary software over. And I think that's something I mean, that's I, I just don't want to make any blanket statements because I, I really want to take each company at its actions. Yeah, but most of Oracle's actions have been bad. The only thing I've seen Oracle do that's been positive is they have one developer who's been working on ButterFS and has been mm -hmm. contributing that to Linux. And that's been true since before the Sun acquisition. But that's the only thing I've seen Oracle do that is really in the spirit of free software. Ever in their history. Even the stuff that they've done since they bought Sun has all been basically negative and, and harmful to the communities that were there. I mean, I'm just talking about the specific... Uh, yeah, if you, you're, you're, what you're, I think what you're talking about is you're talking about a specific version of OpenOffice that you got. You got it probably from Debian. Yeah. And it worked well for you. 
And so as a software program by itself, it's sort of considered in the void. Well, not in the void, running on the system. I'm very hesitant to, um, I'm very hesitant to applaud new projects and forks until they've really done something. And I've been that way. I'm, no, I'm really, actually, I'm really excited about new projects and forks that are, you know, heartfelt and have, you know, momentum and enthusiasm behind them. I just don't want to, I don't want to slag off a, 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 you know, a piece of software that I've been using happily um, with success when, you know, they're, the new thing hasn't happened yet. And I look forward to it happening and seeing well, it is happening. version. Well, it is happening, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, it has happened. It's just you're not running out of trunk, basically. So you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to judge if it's better or worse fair, yet. Fair enough. You just can't judge because you're 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 like you're actually like me in this regard because you wait until something's actually packaged in the stable yeah. version of a distribution. Yeah, that's true. And so it'll be a long time before it's, it'll be a really long time before I do because I only use OpenOffice to dump things out into text files so I can actually read them <laughs> using a normal basically program. files that I I send to you. Um, yeah, I've converted some of your files recently. I've That's noticed. <laughs> and then you sent them to me without uh, providing a, a diff. Well, I mean. couldn't because I couldn't diff against the OpenOffice format because you had no, it No, but you didn't diff form. against the version that you converted. Well, I guess that's true. That's what I found to be so objectionable because you converted its format and then you didn't. Basically, my only choice would be to to would be to either convert it back to OpenOffice or convert my OpenOffice version to tech and run a diff. I think, well, I, actually, there never was, in that particular document you're talking about, there never was <laughs> a version that was in LaTeX that was yours because I did the LaTeX conversion While as you I did made my the edits. Changes? So you could diff it against Ugh. the text file, I guess. I did commit the text file intermittently, which I admit I yeah, didn't send to you. Yeah, but, you know. I intermittently committed that text file and then reformatted it as well. I, made changes. I mean, I had no problem using tech anyway. I just um, was using legacy documents that were in open office but the legacy documents you created you made the legacy no well <laughs> but i created them from other documents almost every document that i created was from another document okay. well that's fine but well, i'm giving up on some of them actually started in doc format how did that happen because i took them from a long time ago in another world another galaxy okay far far away Okay, well, so we should uh, wrap up this segment. Not that this segment had a theme of any kind. No, but it was fun. Okay, so we'll uh, we'll do we'll see how long this was, and then do another segment of some length. Great. So in the last segment, you were mentioning these programs that are designed to make things work on different operating systems, free software. Is that like so, some of the software by the members of the Conservancy, which you are now full-time at? That is correct. That's why I brought it up, uh, <laughs> because I was recently at uh, a projects conference who is like that. I went uh, two weeks ago to, two weekends ago, uh, to the jQuery conference in Boston. And jQuery is that kind of project. Their design, there was a lot of Macs there. It really kind of freaked yeah. me out. But, yeah. but there were so many Macs at like the Linux Foundation. Well, the Macs, Macs at Linux Foundation meet that that is freaking weird. Well, although although there are like I know David Woodhouse, he's a great example of someone. He's always used Mac hardware to run Linux on. So right, but most but usually when you like peer over somebody's shoulder enough to just just to see what they're running, you see OS. 10. You, yeah, right. Yeah. Well, they, there are some 
some hardcore people who like the Mac hardware and run GNU yeah. Linux on the Mac and, hardware. And our intern, Laura Moy, was able to, um, you know, she put, I don't remember what she put, I think just Debian on her, maybe it was Ubuntu actually, on her Mac. She wrote a blog post about it, which I'll link to in the notes. So, uh, so jQuery is one of these projects because their goal is to make software that you write uh, in JavaScript run exactly the same and gracefully degrade on all browsers of all kinds, including in links. So it's all HTML. When you write jQuery, your your core documents are all HTML, and then mm -hmm. they call out to jQuery. And if you load it in with links or some other text-based browser, you still get something reasonable. But if you have a browser that supports JavaScript, you will get a variety of different uh, stuff, animations, all sorts of things uh, that are, are possible in JavaScript, and jQuery makes them all work on all the different browsers. And that's why it's incredibly popular. Yeah, it's a very popular project, and uh, it's designed, uh, it's it's growing incredibly fast. It's it's quickly becoming uh, the biggest project in Conservancy, uh, and uh, and so it's things to think about with that. You don't want too many. Hey, I've said this before. I think that we don't want the conservancy to be so big that it is it is basically a lawsuit target. You don't uh, want its pockets to be too deep, right? So, so if somebody decides one of the conservancy projects uh, is a uh, is infringing some patent, they might decide, wow, there's enough money here that we could sue and make it make it valuable. make it worth our while. Yeah, yeah, to try and take all their money away. Um, so so uh, that that that's something to worry about, but we're not there yet. But we may have to worry about that in the future. But in the meantime, it's very unattractive. You know, nonprofits tend to be unattractive targets because you look like you look like the big bad when you start to sue nonprofits. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but that happens. It's yeah, happens. no, they do. I mean, that's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. um, so how was the conference? So it's it's really good. It's it's not a it's it's funny because uh, those who read my blog know that I said some recent things about Shuttleworth. And in fact, I posted that the day I was at the jQuery conference, and the communities are so non-overlapping that nobody there had even noticed that there was <laughs> that I created this big giant news thing um, about Mark Shuttleworth and his his uh, love of proprietary relicensing. Um, and, uh, and nobody there is into that world. It's not a heavy overlap. I, I, somebody walked up to me and asked me what I was writing because they saw my screen and they had never seen a GNU Linux system. Particularly one is minimally configured as mine. Yeah. They, a lot of the attendees were, were web developers who work mostly on Mac wow. and Windows using jQuery. Yeah, they that, didn't even know what you were running. Yeah. Well, though my screen looks a little strange because it's Sawfish and Emacs and all that. But, but still... When you see a screen that looks generally like that, you know. I mean, like, it must be some yeah. some neckbearded <laughs> Linux dude. Um, although my neckbeard was well shaped, like it, it was. Although I'm growing my beard in, by the way. I, I have, oh. I've been decided to. I should should have more beard going on. So we'll see how that works out. That's a very hipster of you. I is oh no, no I have to try that again. <laughs> so. Um, but yeah, but still not growing a neck beard. But anyway, the, the neck beard attitude of, of the. <laughs> you just want to say neck, neck beard as many times as well, possible. Well, because that was the whole thing. That yeah. was the whole Ubuntu, OMG Ubuntu thing that happened a couple of months ago. Anyway, so, um, so, so yeah, there's people there who didn't know what a Linux system looked like, uh, which is fine. And they're, in the sense that they're coming to free, so it's sort of what you were talking about in the last segment, that they're coming to free software from the line of jQuery. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of new people learning about the whole idea of free software through jQuery. One of the interesting things happening in their community is 
because they're under a permissive license, there, there are a lot of proprietorization stuff going on at all the companies. Uh, and there's interesting pressure in the community to release more. And so they're, I sort of see them as evolving as a free software community. They, they, they don't have sort of the backstory that other free software communities have because they're young as a community, but they, they're sort of going through the same trials and all the outcomes seem to be coming out right. Uh, for example, multiple companies announced at the conference they'd be releasing jQuery derivatives uh, or basically plugins for jQuery that had previously been proprietary. Two different companies announced that during the That's conference. Great. So I think I think that there there is some change going on in that community is becoming more of a free software community. Obviously, the core of jQuery, because they're a conservancy member, all the core, and actually jQuery core and jQuery UI, which are the two primary libraries that are the conservancy members, those are all free software, of course. But there's lots, obviously, of proprietorization around them, mm -hmm. um, which is unfortunate to see. Uh, but uh, but they're hoping to do more, and they're hoping to improve the, the widget set inside jQuery so that there's fewer places for proprietorization. Were they all technical talks at the conference? Mostly, yeah. I, I, some of them, uh, because of my limited knowledge of JavaScript, uh, I, they were they were actually challenging for me to sit in on mm. because I just I don't know JavaScript well enough. Um, at, at one point, it was that weird feeling where so at one point somebody put a slide up and said, "Does this make sense to everybody?" And I didn't want to raise my hand that I was the only one that didn't. So, uh. I, so <laughs> but by the end, by the time he finished talking through that slide, I understood what it was doing because it's uh, I just don't understand some of the library calls well enough to know. How, a lot of the things you do in jQuery is you set up events to happen on certain occurrences, like the classic thing mm -hmm. is a mouse over. When you mouse over right. something, something happens and it runs a function and all that sort of stuff. And so there's all these predefined events in jQuery that you can hook things into. And if you don't know those off the top of your head, you have trouble reading code and saying, well, when does that, when does that event happen and what and so forth. And so do you feel like you learned a lot? I, I learned some. Um, I got sick, unfortunately, uh, while I was there. So I, I didn't actually see as many talks as I wanted to on Sunday. Uh, but uh, but I, I learned a few things about I, I learned more about the community, really. And that was there not necessarily to learn JavaScript mm -hmm. myself and learn jQuery myself, but to learn about the community. And on that front, I learned a lot about how this community operates. Well, that's a cool thing about you being full time at Conservancy is now you can you can do that you can take some time to be involved with all of the Conservancy member projects to the extent they're they're open and interested to it. Yeah, and also I think it's important that that Conservancy understand its communities, and certainly jQuery is probably the community I understood the least. Actually, that's not true. I, I probably don't understand uh, the wine community all that well because I don't because it's not a program I use and it's not mm -hmm. something that I think about. But but uh, probably somewhere between wine and jQuery that are the two communities that I understand the least. Uh, even Samba, which I don't use anymore because I don't run don't connect up with windows machines anymore mm -hmm. years ago in my career i was an early samba user because i used to work like when i worked at westinghouse we had to connect up to the windows file service and stuff and, and actually all the engineers were very happy when i got some smb client running so that they could get the files onto the unix machines easily off of the off the windows server so so i even samba i'm familiar with from way back when obviously it's changed a great deal since then but um, so, so that was the jQuery conference. I was there. It, it, it's, it seems to, it, it, it's, it's good actually because there are conferences on weekends because I think a lot of people, you and I go to conferences a lot yep. during the week because our jobs basically allow us to do so. Most conferences are actually on the weekend. Most of the ones I've went to, I've been to. Oh, really? I've been on the weekend. Yeah, because yeah. we've been together at a lot of the, like OzCon classically is during well, the Ozcon week. Is, and, yeah. And the Linux Foundation events are always during the week. And... Are they? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
Because I'm thinking of a few other conferences right now that are yeah on the weekend. Weekend, but, but I think like Scale is a weekend conference. Well, Scale like I think Northwest. is unique. Although Scale does have its uh, Women in Free Software Day. I actually think they call it Women in Open Source um, Day on Friday. Right. Yeah. Which. Well, it's but I think I it's, like Scale a lot, but that's one thing I would change. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't like. Uh, I don't like being away during the weekends and and such because uh, it's always tough to to travel on the weekends, but. Uh, on the other hand, I'm glad that there are so many conferences on weekends because yeah. that's if you're an enthusiast, if you're not somebody who it's your full time job to be involved in open source and free software, then it's difficult. You have to take vacation days. Well, to that's go right. To it encourages you know enthusiasts. Yeah, and, and that's really important. And so and so while I hate this, uh, I just last two weekends in a row I was away on the weekend. I'm yeah. glad that they're doing it. And the other said so last weekend the conference I was at was the Google. Mentor summit uh, for the summer of code mentors. Oh, cool! Which was interesting. Actually, I knew you were going to that. I just forgot. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> don't laugh. Yeah, well, it's, I told you I was going. So, but was the conference part productive? I think so. I, I, I there was a lot of discussion. Apparently, uh, so, so it's actually kind of weird. There were three hundred slots for mentors to attend uh, the summer of code mentor summit. And they, I think they said they only had 230 people actually come. Hmm. So it was a little bit strange because it was, it was basically a, a, a all, not all expenses paid, but flight paid and hotel paid trip to Google for the weekend mm -hmm. because Google paid for the hotel for two nights and, uh, and flights for everyone. Oh, uh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, they do. They do that for them. That's part of the mentor hmm. uh, right. funding. Mm -hmm. um, so. So it's surprising that people turned it down. I, I think there was a lot of discussion, and, and particularly in the final session, where Carol was basically saying, "Is this really useful? You know, this is just an extra expense for us. Yeah. Do you guys want this?" And of course, everybody there obviously wants this, and they were worried about the numbers and so forth. I think it was more of a, of a communication question. I think people didn't know that they could do the, the first-time mentors probably didn't know about it and so forth. And I'm actually I actually committed uh, during that session to doing more work in conservancy to explain to conservancy members what's available. Because uh, that's a really important thing for a nonprofit to do when there's yeah. a funding opportunity available or something valuable for for volunteers in your nonprofit, you want to let them know that they can take advantage of this program. So I think I could have done more in conservancy to let people know about the mentor summit and so forth, uh, especially since I was going. So I, I committed to that during the thing. I'm actually going to help them write up. Uh, one of the things I, I, I'm going to help them write up is a tutorial for what what orgs that have staff should be doing. Because there's oh that's great. Because the thing is, is that the Carol. I mean, I mean, yeah. So, so you can say, I mean, I would be the type to say Google's a big corporation and they should just do everything for us. But to some extent, well, that's you've not what work. you would say. Well, I might. Okay. Some some people would think I would say that. Okay. I wouldn't say that here because they're the, this is basically philanthropy. It's it's the same thing oh, yeah. as as getting money from a from a foundation or anything else. And you want to make it as easy as possible for people to give you money. You don't want to make it hard for them right. to have to do that. And so orgs that have staff then that works that are volunteers. I think Carol will have to take on the extra work because they don't have, they're just all volunteers. And so, but for orgs like Conservancy, like Mozilla, there's other orgs with staff who, are, who yeah. participate. They really should take on some of the burden of the coordination. So I'm hoping to do that next year for Conservancy, both to encourage Conservancy members to take more advantage of the Summer of Code and the Mentor Summit, and also to just make it easier for Google to have an org. And when they know an org's in conservancy, they're more likely to accept it because they know it's not going to be a pain in the yeah, ass. Sure. You know, those sort of things. Because there's a lot of small orgs uh, that, that get funding that don't have mm -hmm. any staff or anything like that. So how many um, how many conservancy member projects are represented at the Mentor Summit? 
Um, we're roughly about 10%. I, I don't know, because of this thing where not all the projects came, I didn't really uh. count exactly of the ones that came. We're, we're, we usually go between 8 and 12% of Summer of Code is Conservancy member projects. That's been standard That's since amazing. around 2006. That's amazing. I didn't realize that. Well, it, it always gets there because what happens is we get applications because of Summer of Code. Uh. Uh, because the, the Summer of Code also gives the sponsoring organization $500 per mentor. Right. And that's often the first time a project must deal with money. Yep. And so and those people and a lot of people just don't want to take that cash because they can't they don't want they want to take it on behalf of the project, but they don't have any immediate expenses on behalf of the project and they don't want to take it personally. And they, then they well, some actually have. We've, we've had some situations have. where some have, and they've had to pay taxes on it. Yeah, really yeah. Well, they have to pay taxes on it, or sometimes um, they have, but then they spend it right away on some equipment or something. Yeah, like. but they still have to. Oh, they still have to pay taxes. taxes on it for yeah. sure. But um, but at least you know, I'm just saying that it's in the same year, and they can. Yeah, and it's it. also like a, a perfectly appropriate and, and ethical handling of the money. Yeah. Um, I, I just I was I didn't mean to suggest. Yeah. For example, that if someone took it in, took that money in personally, that it meant that the money was poorly handled. Right. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't mean that. And, and in fact, there are people who just follow Schedule C and then take it as expenses because yep. they have expenses for the project. But uh, that's obviously a, a tough thing to do. Um, I've actually have, I, I know somebody in a project that's applying for Conservancy who's been doing that for not just the Google Summer of Code money, but many different income sources for mm. the project and he's been paying taxes on it doing I and mean, he does all the diligent work it's but it's really a lot of work for him to do that uh so they're joining conservancy to hopefully they won't have to do that anymore uh but i i think i think also it's just it, 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 the, the, a lot of people don't realize that google will donate it to another org on your behalf and people have never asked for it. They do that, and people have never asked for it. Like if there's a nonprofit that your project decide that you don't have a nonprofit of your own, but you like some other nonprofit, Google will donate. Oh, the I didn't realize money. that either. That's great. They will no. do that, and so a lot of people don't know that, and a lot of the mentor money goes unclaimed. Um, so, so wow. people should make sure that your mentor money is claimed. If you're in conservancy, obviously, I, you've you've gotten a few emails from me already. And I'm still waiting for many of you to send me the info that I asked for to do this the thing. And if you're a, if you if you have unclaimed funds, <laughs> feel free to donate them to Conservancy yeah. or donate them to the Software Freedom Law Center or the FSF. or the FSF or any one of a number yeah. of free software nonprofits. But There's the first so thing many. you might think about doing, if you are in the summer of code and I didn't see you this weekend and you don't know what to do about the mentor payments, you should also apply for conservancy. Uh, that's a classic reason that we get applications. So feel free and we can hopefully work something out to make sure that they, you can get this year's money as well. We've done that in the past for projects to accept ahead of time before you're a member. And Gosh, it's so stuff. great that you're encouraging people to apply for conservancy now. In the past, before you were full-time at conservancy, it was just one of those, you know, it was just a resources issue. Yeah. A volunteer organization just can't do as much as an organization with a full-time person. Yeah, although it's been, it's been a tough month for me at conservancy because uh, I didn't do any, I did almost no conservancy, I, I, I did some, but almost no conservancy volunteer work in September because there was so much stuff that had to be done to finish up SFLC. So I spent most of my time on stuff at SFLC during September. A lot of my, yeah, I really did. Okay. Yeah, so it was, it, was a, it was getting everything transitioned over to, to everyone mm -hmm. else, all the projects that I was working on at SFLC. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of stuff to do there. I didn't do all that much. I mean, some weekends I did, but. No, but I mean, looking forward, yeah. you can, I mean, Conservancy yeah. can ramp up. That's great. 
Yeah, that's true. But it's been uh, I've been catching up from the September materials mostly uh, stuff that's been delayed since the last stuff was delayed from September that I still haven't completely finished. But not going forward. But hopefully not. <laughs> Who knows? There's uh, it, could, it could become too big and too much work. Well, if it becomes too big, maybe you can hire somebody else. I hope so. That'd be fun. It would be nice, but uh, we need donations for that, unfortunately. Not unfortunately, but that's the only way we can do it is more donations. So I'll just say it again. Donate to the Software Freedom (laughs) Conservancy, which is a 501c3, but also donate to the Software Freedom Law Center. So also have we thought about what if people want to donate to our podcast? We don't have a nonprofit. They can't donate to us right now. I think they should donate to either the Conservancy or actually they should split it. Even if it's a small donation, and give a <laughs> small amount to Conservancy and a small amount to the Software Freedom Law Center. Yeah, on the other hand, Conservancy barely has one employee. SFLC has many employees. It's true, but it means that we're 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 doing a lot and making the most of of limited resources. <laughs> They're both great organizations. So I, I so both yeah, worthy so you, of so, donations. So you don't think we we need any funding? And we we won't we won't be too upset if you donate to the FSF either, even though. Um, well, I'm a director of the FSF, so you, yeah, I want you to give the FSF. I'm, I'm, a, I'm an associate member of the FSF. I'm associate member number one of the FSF. I don't know what my number is, but it's high. <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't reuse any of them. That was the whole idea. Yeah, yeah. But, There's um, been talk about abandoning that numbering thing. You don't want them to? I don't want them to because I'm number one. <laughs> I, I guess if it's too much work to maintain, it's not that worth it. And I give legal advice to the FSF, so... So, so I guess if you want to support us, that's how you do it. I guess we don't need to ask for support for our podcast. I don't think so. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, well, not when there are so I'll many. Keep not when there are great or domain name. That's fine. And I'll keep providing my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Broadcasting from Brooklyn. Okay. <laughs> and we we'll do it again next time. Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of HalfBakedMedia.com. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. That's licensed under CC by ND 3.0 US. The rest of Reason Freedom is licensed under CC by SA 3.0 Unported. Hear that buzz? That's what I don't hear it now. But we don't hear it, I guess. They'll hear it. Well, this is what this is what the whole hopefully or not hopefully. This is what the whole episode would have sounded like last time. Annoying.